Well, good morning. Um, we, we're looking at six days of freezing weather, and uh, I would advise you to maybe take the, the heat wave that we're going to get this afternoon of 45 degrees and go prepare your house, check on your neighbors, uh, make sure you're ready to bundle up for a little bit. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, a few things. One is this. Uh, last Wednesday night we had a missionary come in, Chris Gibson, who was a, used to be on staff here at this church. And, and he made the comment to me as he called me later on the week. He said, I was really amazed at how many, um, how many people you have in your Wednesday night program. You know, how many people come and are, are participating in that. So if you, if you don't know about what we do there, on Wednesday nights we have a pretty, uh, pretty robust program going on. We've got events for children and youth and adults. And we serve a big meal in our fellowship center every week. Um, this week we're going to be serving a big catfish meal. And it's always one of the big hits. Um, but our adult classes have really picked up. And let me tell you a little bit about what we have planned for this year. Um, we've got a four-week class that starts on Wednesday, and it's called Unseen Realities. And so we're going we're gonna to be teaching on angels, then demons, then heaven, and then hell. And I don't know how you pulled this off, Jim, but Jim gets to preach on angels and heaven, and I have to preach on demons and hell, right? Um, <laughs> It's just kind of a reflection, reflection of our personalities, right? Um, so, so this week we start that series. You could come at 5.30 and eat catfish, and then um, the, the class starts between 6 and 6.15 in the same space over there, and everything wraps up. Adult and children's program wraps up about 7 o'clock, and it's a good night. Um, with that being said, I want to uh, invite you to uh, join me as we gather around God's Word this morning we're going to be working our way through Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9 today, so Matthew 18. Now, we need to back up just a moment to set the stage, and in order to do this, I need you to consider what it must have felt like to be one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. If you could put yourself there, do that. Um, I imagine that of all the different lives throughout history that are possible to live, being handpicked by the Messiah to follow him and see all of his miracles would be a very interesting life, don't you think? And I think it's worth saying that when Jesus picked the 12, he didn't go to a, a local seminary there and try to attempt to discover who the most promising biblical scholars were. And he didn't go out and buy one of those magazines you find on the shelves where they list the top 40 leaders under 40. He didn't, Jesus didn't look for accomplished businessmen. He didn't go and look for influential politicians. In a very real sense, think about this, the 12 were not called because they were special. They weren't. They had no apparent qualities that made them an obvious choice to be a disciple of a Messiah. And I, I, part of me always loves that, that Jesus did it this way. I really, I really do. He built his ragtag team of apostles out of fishermen and roughnecks, except for Matthew, who was a culturally repulsive tax collector, and, and no one had good things to say about tax collectors. And there's this beauty to this because if Jesus calls people like this to be his apostles, maybe that means that Jesus has some use for flawed people like you all and me. I wonder how it felt to be um, a disciple of Jesus and to watch as he, as he walked on water and, and to watch as he, as he calmed the waves. I bet those guys thought to themselves at times, I mean, you had to. You had to think to yourself at times like, why me, God? 
Why did, why did Jesus choose me? He could have called, he could have called anyone and they would have followed him. And that's a true story. By the way, that's how Jesus works. If he calls, you will follow. And I bet at the times, like, the disciples felt underqualified to be trained by God incarnate. They felt, I bet at times, humbled just to be along for the journey and to witness God's great work. Now, now here's my point. I think that everyone in this room should have a similar attitude when it comes to our view of ourselves, that, that, that we should be amazed that God would choose us to be one of his people, that God would reveal to us the mystery of his nature, that God would regenerate our hearts and leave us with a faith that saves. And, and, and just like the disciples, God did not choose you, and this is going to hurt some feelings, but God did not choose you because you were special. You became special when God chose you. And, and, and listen, you should forever be amazed by that. And, and you should forever be humbled by that. And, and today's scripture in, here in Matthew 18 deals with what happens when the disciples move from no longer being shocked that Jesus would call them to no longer being humble and grateful. And instead, their, their, their mindset somehow begins to shift and they start to see themselves as, as being important. And they start to feel like big shots. And they start to display arrogance. And that's the danger for us too. And so let's jump in. I want to read our text this morning in its entirety, beginning in Matthew 18, 1 through 9. Uh, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand now in reverence of the word of God read. Before we read, let's pray. Father, uh, we are humbled that we have the opportunity to come before your word um, and, and to see Jesus revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. Father, we understand that, that, that all of this Scripture is your word, and we ask that our hearts would bend before it by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. All right, friends, let's read together, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and, beca and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such uh, child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the, fire, into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter uh, life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's read together from uh, verse 1 and kind of start our exegesis of the text there. It says this, At that time, 
the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, so the verse begins by saying at, at that time. What does that mean? What, what time exactly are we talking about? Uh, that phrase is linking us back to the end of chapter 17. And it's linking us back to last week's story. And if you remember last week, Jesus and the disciples were in Capernaum. And they're on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to face his cross. But it makes sense for them in their travel to Jerusalem to stop at Capernaum because Peter had a house there. And, and more than likely, the scene uh, for this encounter is it all unfolds still at Peter's house. And, uh, and if you remember last week, they just had this whole discussion about Jesus paying his temple tax. And Jesus told Peter to go and get a coin out of the mouth of the fish and pay the tax for both of them. Uh, so at that time, it says that uh, they're probably still in the house there. The disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the way that Matthew's gospel reads is that the disciples, uh, they're, they're convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, and they just assume that meant if Jesus is the Messiah and, and we, the Messiah, and we are his apostles, then we also must be very important people. And, and it almost seems like they're having a, a debate between the disciples, right? Like, like, which of us is the greatest? And you can imagine how debates like that would go among you know, a group of young men who would probably take turns putting one another down and insulting one another. Not only did they lift up why they were the greatest, but they helped the others see why they were not the greatest. Um, it, you know, I keep thinking about this. If the fact that there's even a debate about this goes to the idea that, um, that Peter, remember a few weeks back, was given some special papal office. Do you remember when, when you know, Peter, you are Petros, and on this Petros, I will build my church. And we wondered, was, was Peter given some special rank above all the other apostles? Well, if that was the case, I just don't really think that this conversation would be relevant. They would just all go, well, Peter's the greatest, right? Obviously, Peter's the greatest amongst us, but they don't, they don't have that. And there, there is this gall among the disciples, actually, uh, to, to say, well, finally, let's settle it. Let's just, let's just go to Jesus, and we'll let him tell us which of us is the greatest. And, um, and, so, and so they come to him and say, which, which of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the truth is, the more I begin to read Scripture... Although I kind of painted it that way, I don't think that's exactly the way it happened. I think the disciples actually probably knew better than to take this to Jesus. And I think what happened is they kind of got busted having the conversation. And the reason that I say this is, is I, I've looked at Mark's gospel, and, 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 and it's great. I think you're really going to love the way it kind of it plays out in Mark's gospel. Look at Mark 9, 33 through 34. We'll read that together. It says this. And they came to Capernaum, right there, there. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys talking about on the way? What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This is great. They're out of the earshot of Jesus, and they're on the way to Peter's house, and they're having a schoolyard discussion about which one of them is the greatest, and they get to the house, and Jesus says to them, hey boys, uh, notice y'all are having a little heated conversation, what were y'all talking about over there? And can you imagine trying to keep a secret from Jesus? Mark says, uh, they kept silent, right? Uh, I, I'm not telling them, you know? But eventually someone asked, uh, you know, it was probably a lot more catty than I initially painted it. Jesus, we were just kind of talking about who's, who, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom. And, and look how 
Jesus responds to them, uh, verses 2 through 4. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, some people have even speculated that this could possibly be Peter's child. We don't know. Uh, we know that Peter is married, and we know we're probably in Peter's house, so there's some logic to think maybe this could be Peter's child, but it's just speculation. Jesus takes the child, and the, and, and the child is going to become the illustration. He has the child right there among the disciples. Now, now pay attention to what Jesus says. He says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you want to talk about a shot across the bow of the disciples. They're there arguing about who's the greatest. And, and Jesus begins to warn that unless something in them turns, they're not going to have to worry about who's the greatest. They're not even going to enter the kingdom. Disciples are talking about greatness. Jesus is talking about entrance. Now, a few questions arise. The first is this. It seems really clear that the instruction of Jesus are for the disciples to turn from how they are currently acting and instead to be like a child. But what exactly does that mean? What, what about that child are the disciples supposed to emulate? That's the question. Verse 4, it leaves no doubt as to what they're supposed to emulate. We'll read it together. It says this, whoever it's very clear. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What's commendable about the child in this illustration is its humility. What the disciples are supposed to see when they look at that toddler is that the toddler is not worried about how great he is. The toddler is not worried about his own glory. And the truth is, I've heard several Several bad sermons in my life which address our need to have a childlike faith. And over and over again, it seems that they try to quote this verse and they miss the point of what they're supposed to emulate in the child. I've heard people say things like, a childlike faith is a, it's just a simple faith. It's a faith that doesn't ask questions. It's a faith that doesn't uh, study scripture or, or spend much time on doctrine. It's just a very simple faith that doesn't ask questions. But that's not it at all, is it? What does that have to do with the humility that Jesus seems to be pointing out here? That's a, that is a bad understanding of what it means to have childlike faith. There, there is context to that phrase. Jesus tells the disciples that they are to emulate the child, and in doing so, whoever humbles himself like the child is the greatest in the kingdom. You want to be great? Be humble. And Jesus is pretty stern. He's not just saying, I'd like for you to be humble. It'd be nice for you to be humble. You should consider being humble. He says that unless you turn and be humble like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There will be no debate about your greatness. You're going to be outside. And, and so, Christian, what I need to tell you is that humility 
is a key characteristic in the heart of someone who has been regenerated. The Holy Spirit, when it does its work in you, it leaves you saying, like, I am so unworthy of the grace that I've received in Jesus because I have no righteousness of my own to contribute. My salvation is a gift that I do not deserve. But what happens in us is we become like the disciples. We begin to think that we have walked with Jesus for a while. Maybe you've been in the church for a while. Maybe you've taught a Sunday school class or two. Or maybe you were ordained to an office in the church and you begin to consider that you have something to contribute to your salvation. That God did his part and that you're doing your part. And I've just got to tell you that that, my friends, is a lie from the pit of hell. You contribute nothing. Jesus says in, in his Beatitudes when he's teaching, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the same thing. He's talking about people who recognize that when it comes to, when it comes to personal righteousness, they're bankrupt. They have the humble faith of a child. They're, they're completely dependent on the provision of their father. So the first question that we deal with this morning is, do you have the humble faith of a child? We'll call that part one of our reading. But Jesus has the child up there, and, and he keeps, he's going to keep using that child really a good way through chapter 18. Some, some people will say that all of chapter 18 is built on the illustration of Jesus having this, this child there. Verse 5, he continues using the child. He says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Jesus shifted a little bit, so we need to talk about what does he mean. Whoever receives one such child child receives me who is this one such child i want to suggest to you that it's someone who has a humble christian faith a, a child in this illustration becomes a placeholder for the children of god like it's what jesus is talking about he's talking about christians here right his 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 people god's people and so the logic is this whoever receives one such child a humble believer a christian receives me also this is what jesus is saying what's the lesson here what's what's the point the point jesus seems to be making is the way that you treat god's people is how you treat jesus let's say that again it seems that, that, that what jesus is saying is the way that you treat god's people in some way, is the way that you treat Jesus. I don't, I don't know how to say this other than to talk to you as a father. And, and as a father, I can say that in many ways, the way that you treat my children is the way that you treat me. When I hear someone has done something wonderful for my kids, it feels like they've done something wonderful for me. Like, and, and I've got people in mind that there have been people at Lakeside who have um, taken Riley, my daughter, and, and when she's having hard times, have taken her to, to dinner and have spent time with her and have listened to her um, share about struggles in her lives. And when I hear that they did that, man, it just blesses my heart as a father. I feel like they've done something personally to care for me. And I think this, is, this gets a little bit at what Jesus is saying, but but at a very minor level, because I can't love the way he does it. He loves his people. 
And when you receive God's people and, and when you care for them, in a very real sense, you bless Christ. This is the positive way of stating the scenario, right? When you do good things for God's people, you bless Christ. You remember, there's another place in Scripture, it's also in, in Matthew's Gospel, where Matthew is saying, um, or Jesus is saying to Matthew, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And, and the righteous will answer Jesus and they'll say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and give you food? And what did Jesus say? Do you remember? Look at Matthew 25, 40. And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did to, the least, uh, to one of the least of these my brothers, once again, He's talking about Christians. The least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Jesus wants the disciples to know that how they treat God's people is how they treat him. And, 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 and what we've done is we've simply focused on the positive part of that. But there's a negative part of that also. There's a negative part of that as well. Look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. However you treat God's people, you treat Christ. But if you cause one of God's people to sin, what Jesus seems to be saying is that it would be better for you to be taken out into the depths of the ocean and to have a rope that's attached to a giant boulder and have that rope tied to your neck so that you perish. That's severe language, isn't it? And so I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think that Jesus takes sin lightly? I'm kind of brought back to that illustration of fatherhood, right? How do you feel about people that cause your children to sin? How do you feel about the boy who tries to compromise your daughter? How, how, how do you feel about the person who gets your child addicted to drugs? So consider this. Not only does Jesus uh, extort us to avoid sin, we, he also extorts us not to cause other believers to sin. Have you ever thought about that? How might that work? How, how might you or could you lead someone else to sin? Because Jesus is actually telling us now that we have a responsibility not to cause other Christians to sin. And I think oftentimes we think, well, that's his responsibility. That has nothing to do with me. I think that the, the most obvious way we lead someone to sin is that we tempt them towards sin based on our own behavior, right? Um, you flirt with a married coworker. You intentionally dress in a way that that exposes flesh so that others are drawn to look at you in intimate ways. And, and some people do this on purpose because it makes them feel important and valuable. It gives them an attention that they desire. But that value comes at the expense of a burning passion in the mind of another. And that passion is sin. And if you're intentionally causing that so that you can feel cute and attractive, you are not caring for the souls of others. Look at what Jesus says in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. 
For it is necessary that temptations come, but here's this, it's almost a curse, ready? But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. There are plenty, plenty of other ways to cause people to sin. What about when, uh, when we as parents model sinful behavior for our children? What if as, as fathers we're teaching our boys to do sinful things? What if you have picked up in your life sinful habits that, that you're, now, you're now modeling for your children and in a way you are training them to sin? Jesus would say, woe to you. What if, what, what if you and your spouse, what if you sit at the dinner table in the evenings and you gossip and you talk bad about everyone in your life and your kids are sitting there watching that and they're, they're, they're being trained to do that in their adult life as well? What about the things that you expose your children to in the home? What kind of programming are you watching in front of your children or your grandchildren? What kind of programming are you allowing to be watched in your home? You are responsible for everything that comes into that home. How do you think the disciples felt when... Uh, when Jesus was, was saying these things, do you, do you see the context? The disciples, are, they're bickering about their greatness, and in doing so, they're not only being arrogant, which they are, but they're also, in a way, causing one another to sin through their conflict. Their, their arrogance is, is kind of forcing an arrogance in the others. Their need to be great is causing their brother to feel underappreciated, and their, and their underappreciated brother is responding in anger. When, you're, when, you, when you bicker with another believer and you're being petty or mean or arrogant, listen, you're going to cause someone else to sin. That's the context from this teaching from Jesus. You're not only responsible for yourself, you have a responsibility of how your behavior causes the birth of sin in someone else, and so woe to the one from whom temptation comes. And what Jesus does is he moves now to offer a solution to the disciples. He gives them a way to handle temptation and sin. And, and, and before we talk about that solution, I want you to do something for me. I want you to just do an exercise with me. I, I want you to consider in your mind where you are most tempted to sin. What is the, what is the one area where you really experience temptation? Where you really are tempted to behave in a way that you know is not the will of God, and, and I'm sure there's plenty of areas, but if, you, if you're like me, you've got one or two that kind of are in the back of your mind, and you know that, that if Satan is fishing with the bait of temptation, this is what he's going to use. Get that in your mind. Ready? Think about it. Now let's read about Jesus' solution. Verses 8 and 9. 8 and 9, excuse me, says this. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. The solution Jesus seems to offer is whatever it is that causes you to sin, get rid of it. Even if 
It is very, very extreme. That's, that's the point of this whole illustration, is, is that whatever causes you to sin, get rid of it, even if it's extreme. You should be willing to go to extremes to avoid sin. Jesus is talking about cutting, cutting off your foot or tearing out your eyes. And let's be clear, I really hope none of you do that. But Jesus is saying be willing to go to extreme measures to avoid sin. And, and he just says this, like, it, it, it is really better to be missing an eye than to have two eyes and go into the fires of hell. And I know that that language isn't appreciated anymore. And we don't, we don't seem to want to be willing to try to scare people from sin with hell, that it's just not popular way of preaching anymore. But, but my job is simple, right? My job is to explain plainly what the Scripture says. And if I'm trying to explain plainly what Jesus is saying, Jesus is plainly telling the disciples that they should turn and be humble so that they could enter the kingdom of heaven and that they should not cause others to sin in their behavior and that they should take sin so seriously that they would go to extremes to avoid sin because it's better to go to extremes and make sacrifices to avoid sin than to not make those sacrifices and what? And wind up thrown in the fires of hell. So if my job is to simply say what Scripture is saying, then this is a fire and brimstone sermon. But it's one that is delivered by Jesus. So back to your temptation. What was the one thing you thought about moments ago? Now, what is the extreme measure that you could take to cut that out of your life? Now, here's what's going to happen. If you're like me, you're going to start bargaining. Start bargaining with your sin. Start bargaining with the Lord. You're going to try to justify half measures. But I don't think half measures are going to work. Jesus knew this. I think it's why he instructs his disciples to take extreme measures to avoid temptation and sin. So what are you going to do? What do we read today? We read Matthew 18. The disciples begin, they just kind of lost themselves. They're arrogant, arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says that unless they turn and become like a child, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Furthermore, Jesus warned his disciples against causing another to sin, saying that it would be better to tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the ocean where you would perish. And finally, Jesus talked about a solution. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it's better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. This has been Matthew 18, 1 through 9. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word by which you bring conviction. We thank you for uh, the care that Christ has over our hearts. That while at the same time we are held eternally in his hands and he will never let us go, but at the same time the teaching of Christ is that we should battle against our own sin that we should get rid of everything that causes us to stumble and that we should take it very seriously if we cause others to stumble as well. 
Father, I, I pray that we would have the same conviction in our heart that Christ seems to have, that we would hate sin in the same way that he does, that we would protect um, children in Christ the way that Christ wants to protect them. Father, uh, by your spirit, bring conviction and the endurance to run the race. We pray this in Jesus' name and all the church said, amen.